Blog Talk Radio. All right, so now we got everybody. We got everybody here, and I actually I need to get the feet up here too. Yeah, you do. Uh, first thing, right off the top, happy birthday to Edgar and Pluto at the Pony Museum. Yay! <clears throat> it is their tenth birthday. They are ten years old today. And handsome as ever. Those handsome devils they are. They're so cute. Go check them out on the Facebook. They got some new treats that they were showing off. Yep. So very, very uh, excited for them. Happy birthday. Yep. And, uh, yeah. So, November 7th. Cheers. Halloween, Halloween was a week ago, though it feels like a month ago. I, uh, yeah. I, I don't know words. Yeah, we're still recovering. Yeah. <laughs> so this might be a bit of a low key episode tonight. We um I took forever to actually get this posted on Facebook, so I think people have only had a couple of days to even realize that we were doing this tonight. And he finished editing about two hours ago. Yes. Yes, editing just wrapped up and um let's just say it's uh, not my finest effort. Well, it's my finest effort on the first trip. Anyway, it's been a week and here we are. It's uh, you know, happy to have whoever's here with us tuned in. Yes, and we, uh, of course, have been promising Haunted Salem for a while, so now we are going to produce Haunted Salem, and we have our favorite witch up there behind us, Ms. Elvira. Yeah, and uh, we have Patrick with us tonight. Hey, Patrick. Hi, Patrick. Which was awesome to meet you back on the 30th. Glad you could come see us down at the market event. Yep. That was uh, definitely that was a fun evening. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's just uh, a. I don't feel so long ago. It's been a week. We 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 didn't really slow down. We had we had what Tuesday night we did have off. Tuesday but, night we had off. But then we did a pub crawl Wednesday. It was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. Yep. And now we're doing this. Yeah, and now we're doing this, and it, it's it's Monday, and uh, yeah, kind of sort of sort of starting to get back into the swing of things. It's hard to believe that actually, um, um, well, no, um, two days ago, actually, we'll be wrapping up our Haunted Key West event. Yep. So we'll we'll be settled down there. Or actually, are we flying back a, a month from today? No, we're flying back up. The 8th. No, the 7th. Seven. It is the 7th. Today is the 7th. Yeah. We fly back from Key West a month from today. So, yeah, we're only going to be, we're going to be getting down there in just a few weeks for the Haunted Key West event. Looking forward to that. Yep, and we have a uh, blood moon lunar eclipse tonight. Mm-hmm. If you're inclined, everything is weird in here, just in case you were wondering. If you're inclined to uh, inclined to uh, get up at the middle of the night to see that eclipse, because what is it, 4 a.m. You said? <laughs> 4 a.m. in Virginia is going to be the best time to see it. Look west. Yep. And friends. So, I think what else we got coming up? Not. I mean, we're doing tours. Basically, it's just tours of fun. Yeah, we, we're, we got Comic-Con. Yep, we do have Comic-Con on the 19th. Yep, so we'll be at Comic-Con on the 19th. From, that's from 11 to 4 at the Richmond Raceway. And, uh, yeah, if you look up Virginia Comic-Con or Richmond Comic-Con, you should just go ahead and Google search it. It should come right up and be easy to find. And uh, we're going to be there just uh, kind of repping for the day, um, have some uh, haunts of Richmond uh, gear out for uh, for purchase just in time for the holiday season. Yes, and some jewelry. I gotta get going for jewelry for that. Yep. There is a cosplay contest, so if there's any people who really like cosplay, definitely a place to go through that. Mm-hmm. So that's gonna be a lot of fun. But other than that, I think we're we're, chilling this we're just kind of chilling a little bit, which is um, is needed. Yes. But yeah, so. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and let's dive in. We got we got our haunted Salem to talk about tonight. So Yep. So Salem, Massachusetts, of course, has an unshakable reputation as one of the most haunted cities in the world. Due to this history, Salem's become a popular destination spot for those who have an interest normal. Between the old graveyards, which houses abandoned churches, uh, that have been converted into museums, there is much to see when visiting, especially when you seek out and have run ins with paranormal and supernatural. So we're going to dive right in and we're going to go to the Joshua Ward house. Um, <laughs> this one house has a spooky re- reputation that stands above most of the other establishments. 
It is a beautiful brick three-story federal style house located at 148 Washington Street. While the house is not open to the general public, it does not diminish the countless paranormal sightings that have occurred at this property. Given the property's past, it's easy to see why some of the spirits may be anchored here after so many years. Now, the house was built in 1784 by a wealthy sea merchant who, uh, yeah, was called Joshua Ward. Once the house was finished, it became quite popular as it was one of the first houses in Salem to be constructed entirely out of brick. The house was so celebrated that during a trip to Salem, George Washington not only toured the house, but asked if he could stay there. Because of this, a bust of George Washington can be found in the second floor window. Sounds like a perfectly delightful property, doesn't it? Well, just remember that the house might be delightful. Land, not so much. Because, well, there were some horrible crimes that occurred there many years before the house was built. Now, while the house was constructed, as I said, in 1784, the property has an older history dating back to the 1800s. The era that Salem is best remembered for with its involvement with the Salem Witch Trial. These trials had a serious impact not only on the town, but the entire country, and its effect can still be felt throughout the city today. While the Joshua Ward House was not involved in the trial that occurred nearly a century before this time, the property that he purchased was heavily involved. And the land that the house was built upon was once owned by another notable figure who had a significant role in these witch trials. There, of course, an unforgettable time in U.S.'s early history, and it all began in Colonial Massachusetts in the middle of the year of 16 when a group of young girls claimed that they had been cursed by witches lurking within the community. Girls claimed that these witches caused them to be possessed by the devil himself, making them have convulsions, visions, and uncontrollably. With hindsight, most think that witch girls were simply seeking attention or perhaps looking for some sort of revenge on those that they identified as witches. That said, it's also interesting to note that in 1976, in an article in Science Magazine, a noted study that sought to determine if there was anything that could be legitimately causing these girls to think they were bewitched. The study found that they could have been suffering from exposure to fungus ergo, this plant disease. Stay away from my egg mouth. <laughs> this plant disease is commonly found in grains such as rye and wheat, which were popular foods at this time period. What's more, and coming into contact with the fungus can actually cause delusions, convulsions, the same symptoms that were claimed to be shown by those who were bewitched. It's possible that the tragic events that transpired in Salem could have resulted because of disease grains. That being said, Given the scientific knowledge, or lack thereof, in the 1600s, people were led to believe that the symptoms exhibited by these young women was the result of witchcraft. The girls initially accused three women of witchcraft, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and an enslaved woman, Tichuba. Well, the first two women denied having any involvement with witchcraft. I do. I do. Okay. There we go. Accidentally deleted part of the script. Dun, dun, dun. We're good. I think Anyway, Tichuba actually openly claimed she was a witch, and uh, she actually was working with other witches that were hiding in the community, and they had been working with her to cast spells on others. Naturally, this caused mass hysteria amongst the people of Salem. The settlers were determined to find all of the witches among them. However, there was no way of factually determining if somebody was actually a witch. Ironically, it's probably one of the very few times in pre-Civil pre, well, pre War colonies or United States that they took an enslaved person's statement at face value. Yeah. Because there's far too many instances of... Uh, that not being allowed. Not being allowed, but... By law, that's not allowed. I digress. Anyway, um, now, of course, a lot of this became trials of he said, she said scenario, essentially making any two party automatically guilty. 
A small or large amount of the child's hearings were left in local officials, and this gave some of them an inflated sense of power that they suddenly had this massive responsibility in preserving the safety of the community. One of these individuals who had a significant role in these trials was Mr. George Corwin, the man who previously owned the property where the Joshua Ward House now resides. George Corwin was one of the men who served as an official, uh, town official charged with running the proceedings throughout the trial. It all started May 27th of 1692 when George was elected the High Sheriff of Salem at the age of 25. Most likely he got this because, well, his family was well connected, he had several uncles as well as his father-in-law, all serving as justices, they figured he could handle it at such a young age. Sounds like the Richmond Sheriff's Office. Okay, let's mm -hmm. not go there. We're not digressing that way. Anyway, <laughs> elections are tomorrow. <laughs> he doesn't get elected. Oh, well, elections are still tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So. Anyway, so when he was named the High Sheriff, the trials were already underway. Unfortunately, in time, George would play a large part not only in convicting those on trial, but also in facilitating their torture. He was tasked with transporting these women to the trial, arranging for the hanging if they were proven guilty, and let's just say he got a taste for it. He became increasingly gruesome with the tortures that he inflicted, and he enjoyed it. Uh, it said that he would even visit the houses of those who were recently executed to take all of their money and property for himself. Sadly, not uncommon. Uh, not uncommon. Holy crap. Anyway. <laughs> he was involved in all 19 of the deaths that came, came as a result of the trial. Now, giving... Given his role as high sheriff. Does that mean? Yes. Sorry. It was fair to assume that he had a hand in executing all of them as well. Um, let's just say he became a man that was feared and hated in the community. Now, it's somewhat surprising that Joshua Ward would actually choose to build his house with this history on the property, but it's probably somebody or say that as time went by, people forgot this, and so thus he just saw a really great property from his future estate. In the centuries that have passed, the Ward House has undergone a few changes. For a brief period in the 19th century, it was converted into a hotel, but that was short-lived. In the 1970s, there was a plan to tear down the house and build a commercial building in its place. However, several historical preservation societies voiced their concerns loudly and put an end to that plan. Yes, we should. Mm -hmm. Now the property stands as it was originally built and houses several businesses within it. And this, the modern businesses reside residing in the building today. Yes, I can talk. There seem to be unsettled spirits of generations that linger on, making themselves known to the current inhabitants of the house in rather unsettling way. One of the spirits at the house, uh, some have earn themselves nicknames, let's say, of their various means of manifestation. So the first one is the Strangler. With the identity of the Strangler being uncertain, some believe that it's possibly George Corwin himself. The association between George and the Strangler comes with the rumors that George would personally torture some of his accused in his home, sometimes strangling them to near death. While there's no definitive proof that this actually ever occurred, Many are wary of going up to the second floor of the courthouse because, well, let's just say there have been numerous accounts of people being choked by unseen hands, portion of the building, leading them to believe that they have had an encounter with George himself. Sounds like um, a second story I will not be going in. Uh, yes, no, no, not for you. Nope. So then there's the president that some will identify as Giles Corey. Now, Corey has the unfortunate distinction of being the only individual in American. Uh, history, colonial, or the entire United States, to be sentenced to death by pressing. Yes, he literally had more weight added, added, added until he couldn't breathe anymore, and at one point his tongue popped out. And it's reported that George just used his walking cane to shove so the tongue back, back in his mouth. Yeah, George was a very unpleasant individual, and the whole execution of uh, Giles. Giles was a, a very, cool. very gruesome affair. Um, 
Now, the things that are associated with Giles is that, well, pockets are of chilled air, are appearing in heated rooms, books and pictures fall from their shelves, candles being melted even though they were never lit. However, there's the first <laughs> that is a unique to the spirit, and as candles inexplicably melt, they consistently form into the shape of an S. Then he takes this as a sign that Giles is still calling out the sheriff who plays such a prevalent role in his execution. Then, of course, there's the witch because Salem. Salem. <laughs> so she is said to reside in the top floor of the house. She's rarely seen, but one that made her very, very famous was ha uh, happened in 1981. Um, now, at this point in time, Carlson Realty was one of the businesses that had just moved into the house, and they hosted a company-wide Christmas party. While so many festivities were going on, a coworker decided to take some Polaroid pictures to save as mementos of the occasion, and he snapped a quick picture of a coworker in front of some decorations at the party. But when the picture developed, the light-haired coworker was not in the photograph. Instead, it was a grainy image uh, where a very pale woman with a head full of dark, curly hair, complete opposite of the person being photographed, actually showed up. Now, once this image was released, many news channels began to cover the story, and the following months, more stories came out as many people claimed to have seen the woman in or around the house. While no one has been able to identify this woman, many think that she's the spirit of one of the witches. George executed during the Salem Witch Trial. Now, it's also interesting to consider that the majority of paranormal activity reported has been um, reported by men who have encountered something in the house. Men have uh, reported that they have left the house with unexplained, uh, unexplainable scratches on their chest or have experienced an uncomfortable feeling of another person in the room watching them while they were inside of the house. While there's no explanation for this, many think that it's probably a spirit of one of the wrongly accused women uh, during those trials who are trying to get their final revenge. It is also worth noting, of course, you know, people associate witches with women, but there were... Uh, men are, male witches are called witches. Yeah, but there, there were also, yeah, numerous men were caught up and executed in the Salem witches. Yeah. Giles so, Corey was uh, just one of several. Yeah. So... Yes. But he's most noted because of how he was. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, his whole thing, he wound up, he never agreed to trial. There was mm -hmm. a whole stipulation that the accused had to basically verbally agree to go to trial. Which basically yeah. was a death sentence because they were going to find you guilty. And he just stopped talking. They were attempting to get a confession out of him, and the only word that he would say was more weight. Yeah, they yeah, that was when he was already um, being, pressed. being pressed. But before that, they had been trying to get him to uh, agree to go to trial for several weeks. He was he just went mute, wouldn't say anything because he was so upset about the whole ordeal, which justifiably so. His he had before that loudly protested the fact that his wife was caught up in the trials. Yeah. So, yeah, that was hmm. yeah, very, a very very dark history. And that is why Salem has the reputation it does today. One of my favorite cities, by the way. Mm -hmm. so, but yes, so moving along, we will turn our attention elsewhere as we move to what is now uh, Turner's Seafood. It's a New England seafood restaurant and a local institution in Salem. And while the cuisine and ambiance offered at Turner's are renowned, the restaurant's enduring appeal isn't only due to its fare or decor. The modern Turner's property is better known as Lyceum Hall, a historic landmark. In its day, Lyceum Hall was predominantly a center for lectures and presentations. It hosted a number of famous cultural, political, and academic features, figures. Furthering the mystique and the legendary status of what is now Turner's Seafood, even before the Lyceum Hall was on the property, the land once housed an apple orchard. Now, Bridget Bishop, one of the most notable figures in the Salem Witch Trials, owned the orchard. Bishop, of course, isn't noted in history for simply being an apple orchard owner, 
Her notoriety stems from her demise. She was the first woman executed for the charge of witchcraft in the 1692 trials. Apparently, her ghost haunts the building that came to reside on the land of her orchard. The most common accounts of Bridget Bishop painted a portrait of a vibrant woman who in her life was perhaps misunderstood. That's perhaps an understatement. Anyway, uh, according to the centuries-long rumors associated with Bishop, the woman was supposedly a promiscuous, amoral, flamboyantly flamboyant barfly who was married three times. No. No. All yeah, no. yeah. Going on, all traits looked down upon in puritanical Salem Village, especially for women. Per this logic, her flashy figure made her an easy target for the witchcraft accusations they would later act her life. It was curvy, oh my. However, there are conflicting versions of Bishop as a real historical person rather than an exaggerated outside legend. The colorful characterization of Bridget Bishop as a woman who dressed loudly and owned a tavern is most likely a historical inaccuracy that over time has been passed along as fact. In later retellings of witch trial era Salem, Bishop was uh, repeatedly confused with Sarah Bishop, another woman accused of witchcraft and the wife of one of Bishop's stepchildren. The real Bridget Bishop was no less interesting or prone to controversy and attention, though. And she was, in fact, married three times, but for unfortunate reasons. Bridget Bishop was born Bridget Playfer between 1632 and 1635, somewhere in that time, over back in England. While still in England, in 1650, she married Samuel Wackelby, her first husband. Shortly after getting married, the couple moved to Massachusetts Bay Colony. After Wackelby's death in 1664, Bishop married again. In 1666, Bishop married a widower, Thomas Oliver. During her second marriage, she was a stepmother to Oliver's sons and mother to a daughter of their own. The pair fought often, however. Their fights were severe enough to land them in court on at least one occasion. For a neighbor's testimony, Mary Rokes, aged about 50 years, deposed that she had several times been called to her neighbor Thomas Oliver's by himself, but mostly by his wife, to hear their complaints about one another, and they both acknowledged that they had been fighting together. Further, she saw Goodwife Oliver's face at one time bloody and at other times black and blue. And the said Oliver complained that his wife had given him several blows as well. As a result, Bishop and Oliver were fined. In 1678, Bishop was brought to court again for using foul language toward her then-husband. Unbelievably, she was then ordered to stand with her husband in the public market. For an hour, they stood, gagged in their mouths, with paper labels explaining their offense attached to both of their foreheads. These repeated offenses and highly visible punishments obviously didn't help Bishop's image in the village. (laughs) For better or for worse, probably for better, a year later, Oliver dies, and Bishop inherits his estate. She received the house, 10 acres of land, two pigs, and the household contents. Both Bishop's stepsons and daughter only received 20 shillings each. And you don't have to be a colonial currency expert to infer that such an amount is very low. As such, shortly after receiving the inheritance, she was suspected of the witching Oliver to death. This initial accusation didn't go to trial, chiefly due to lack of supporting evidence, an ironic outcome given how the witch trials would operate later. But later in 1687, Bishop was accused of and arrested for stealing brass from a local mill. There are no records that dictate what happened in that trial, but suffice it to say, Bishop's reputation only worsened with time. She married a third time to a well-regarded woodcutter named Edward Bishop, earning the married name that she would soon be immortalized under. <clears throat> Around the Salem witch trial, the bishops lived in what is now known as downtown Salem. There, it's 43 Church Street, Bridget Bishop owned an apple orchard. Unknown to her at the time, this orchard would later play a significant part in her afterlife. During the witch trials, Bridget Bishop was the most accused victim of all. A number of outlandish stories about her circulated, that she conjured up demonic black-colored pigs and a flying monkey to torture a neighbor. She bewitched humans and animals alike. She even killed a few people. Bridget, the wicked witch is less than flying monkey. Kind of sounds like the inspiration. 
Now, perhaps due to her perceived character and criminal history, an abundance of witnesses poured out to testify against her. Worsening her situation, Bishop's own testimony was shaky and inconsistent. Despite her professions of innocence, no one believed her. Ultimately, she was sentenced to death by hanging for bewitching five young girls. Her death was just the start of a wave of witch trials and executions that led to the death of 13 more women and six men. As for Bridget's Pop Properties, the second life of 43 Church Street was the Lyceum Hall. Now, Lyceum Hall was a Victorian area magnet for intellectual heavyweights, luminaries such as Henry David Thoreau, Frederick Douglass, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Clara Barton, and Alexander Graham Bell all appeared with Lyceum. Most remarkably, on February 12th of 1877, the Lyceum was where Graham Bell conducted the first ever demonstration of the telephone. The Lyceum's sturdy brick building dates back to 1831 when the Salem Lyceum Society purchased land. Following the trends of the 1800s, Lyceum Hall was intended to be a space for education and entertainment. The Lyceum offered literary readings, discussions, and lectures to both the society's members and the general public. Popular subjects of the lectures were politics and government, art, science, literature, and philosophy. Over the course of six decades, the Lyceum hosted over 1,000 lectures. Curiously enough, there are no known stories from this era of visitors observing any paranormal activity at the hall, which, uh, why this is the case, is appropriately enough up for discussion. <laughs> the third and latest life of 43 Church Street belongs to the world of dining. After the Lyceum's time ended, the building underwent renovation. This remodeling has allowed for the space to act as a restaurant or bar. Since 1989, the former Lyceum Hall has served as a place for dishes and drinks. This long-standing tradition continues to the present day with the building's current occupant, Turner Seafood. Oddly, since becoming a restaurant, Bridget Bishop has seemingly made it a point to return to her former orchard. Ever since 1989, several visitors have reported witnessing a woman in a long white gown drifting throughout the building. The woman has been seen eerily floating above the Lyceum's main staircase. She's appeared in brief glimpses in the reflections of the building's windows and mirrors. As another reminder of Bishop's legacy, the fresh, crisp aroma of apples can sometimes be noticed in the building, despite the building not having had been an orchard for centuries. Though Turner sometimes has a few apple-centric items on their seasonally rotating menu, the scent of apples weighs in the air regardless of the menu's contents. Beyond the spectral lady and smell of apples, doors close and open on their own. Lights flicker on and off. Boxes were once thrown down the stairs from an unseen specter, witnessed by a shaken contractor who was only there to replace or repair the sprinkler system, but endured much more than they had signed up for. During a paranormal investigation of the building, the team was trying to make contact with a resident spirit, but instead of hearing a voice, they received a response from an antiquated cash register. The cash register printed a receipt time stamped good morning. Time stamped good morning. Yet the register hadn't been programmed to print the phrase. The manager was unable to provide an explanation. While the experiences at Turner's can be unsettling, they generally have a sense of mischief or attention seeking. And while her long absence from the property can't be definitively explained, perhaps Bridget was stirred up by some aspect of the restaurant renovation, or perhaps she was just always there and saw a unique opportunity to try and communicate that wasn't there before. In any case, if you ever find yourself seeking out seafood at Turner's, perhaps you could spare a brief moment to give Bridget a quick hello. Thank Get my calendar. <laughs> it is eggnog. It is eggnog season, by the way, and also gingerbread stout and gingerbread quarter season. They Which were... is what Chris has. I have rum in it. Yep. So good. Yeah. But uh, yes, the the what's it? Homestead Creamery eggnog is back in some of the grocery stores. It is. Is it up here? Yes. Is that right? I have not tried.
She is such a fixture of the place that they even have given her her own drink on the menu, a tasty mix of rum, blue caraco, and pineapple juice. Cheers to the blue lady. Pronounce curacao. Curacao it is. Sorry, I don't know why I said Caraco. That's okay. I see it in my head when I'm very reading. Yeah, it just, just kind of looks that way. Just like the whole uh, Rhino conversation we had earlier. <laughs> All right. That's so, a whole other thing. We digress. Yeah. Inside joke. Inside joke. But now we're going to um, go to a location that many of you are familiar with if you watched Hocus Pocus back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, you could have watched it yesterday, too, and still be familiar with it. Yes. Yeah. Thing when the movie came out. Yeah. I've never seen that. But... Wait, what? You've never seen the original Hocus Pocus? No, you think? You're going to watch it with me and then we don't watch it. <laughs> we can fix that. That's fixable. That's... We, we can order some India and then have a Hocus Pocus. Actually, that's wonderful. We that's... can do that. Okay. We need to tell Marsha. We digress further. Okay. Yes. Anyway, as we as we, we, we get distracted by good movies and food, we actually have like eight people watching us now. Wait. Oh, hey guys, I'm sorry about that. Better, better, better up, better up my game. Let's <clears throat> uh, be professional. Yeah. <laughs> so time for the Hocus Pocus tie-in. Now, assuming you are familiar with classic movie, and even if you're not, again, whatever, that's fine. Go watch it. You'll notice real quick. There is an asymmetrical white painted colonial house that achieved on screen fame in Hocus Pocus, but it does have some very real spooky tales going on behind the scenes as well, with some very grim history to go alongside. Now, today it is called the Ropes Mansion, and that is Ropes, as in R O P E S, uh, family name. Which you mentioned Mary already. Yep. It was a tight knit community. But, uh, now, it is today owned by the Peabody Essex Museum, but it was built by Samuel Bernard in the later 1720s. Unfortunately, we know little about Samuel Bernard. He was a merchant who moved to Salem from Deerfield, Massachusetts, and he led a prosperous life in Salem Village, marrying and remarrying on four separate occasions. Yet, he didn't get a guy like poor Bridget. That's because he was male. I know. It was also... Uh, about 30 years later. Still, there was yeah, a, 30 years on me. Anything that comes to fight. Salem had a pretty severe hangover once they realized what they did. And oh, they yeah. So, Many people yeah. left. Yeah. 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 So, it changed. But, all right, we digress. Again, there is a little more of notes that we know of Mr. Bernard, but subsequent inhabitants left a much larger footprint on the historic record. Enter Judge Nathaniel Ropes in 1768. He purchased the house from his from the nephew of Samuel Bernard. Ropes was a wealthy, though unpopular, attorney and Harvard graduate who, despite his disrepute, led an impressive career. Ropes represented Salem in the colonial legislature and later served on the governor's council. Ropes was even a judge for the Inferior Court of Common Pleas. By 1772, Rokes was appointed to the Superior Court of Judiciary. 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 It's not it. It's not judiciary. Judiciary. I Judicature. Is that it? Judicature? Maybe. Sounds, sounds just better. We'll go with that. Judicature. In an impressive appointment as the Superior Court of Judicature was the highest court of the colony. Yet, Rokes was a loyalist. This had led for him to become quite an unpopular individual. Loyalists were not very welcome in Massachusetts colony. And controversies related to taxation had Salem Village up in arms. And the judges were paid by the elected representatives of the general court, making them partial to colonial interest. Which sounds like a good thing. Judges kind of on the side of big colonial interests. And for the judges to favor the interests of the colonists, however, was unacceptable to the British government. So there was a proposal floated that instead of being paid by the colonists, that the judges should be paid by the crown. The colonists were naturally infuriated that the crown would seek to further impose themselves upon colonial life and demanded that the judges reject their royal salaries. Now, for his part, Ropes agreed to deny the salary from the crown. Yet, he still remained a loyalist. The colonists could not abide this, 
and uh, they subsequently attacked the Rokes Mansion in March of 1774. The mob of colonists threw mud, stone, and sticks at the windows, demanding that Rokes renounce his allegiance to the British crown. Ropes, however, never had the chance. He died the following day at the age of 47. Now, we will say, historic records show that Ropes had been suffering from smallpox already, but the Ropes family felt that the mob helped to hasten Nathaniel's path to the grave. Truth probably falls somewhere in the middle. You never know. Now, a bit stressful when they're throwing rocks and stones. Yeah. Now, over 60 years later, more tragedy does visit the Ropes Mansion when Abigail Ropes met her tragic ending in 1839. Abigail was Nathaniel's daughter, and her dress caught fire one evening when she attempted to carry hot coals from one room to another. Apparently, she got too close to the fireplace, and her petticoat ignited. Abigail lingered for three weeks before succumbing to her injuries, which sounds awful. After Abigail's passing, an entity known as Nabby, somebody oh, downed her Nabby, I never found that out, but Nabby, has a wonderful nickname, if it was. Yeah. Nabby has allegedly haunted the Rose Mansion ever since. Reports of her apparition flourished throughout the history of the house, and many have spotted her in the upper windows of the mansion, looking out at the beautiful gardens which surround the house. The Rose Mansion history with fire doesn't end there. The interior was badly damaged during the blaze in 1891, and another fire damaged the mansion again in August of 2009. Most attribute the blazes to negligence or bad luck, but there are some who try to point the figure at Abigail Ropes, claiming that her spirit bears hostility to the home where she was so gruesomely burned. In addition to Nabby's apparition, visitors to the Ropes mansion claim that they can hear the sound of Abigail's agonized screams. Some say that Nathaniel Ropes haunts the house alongside her. Now, Rick and Georgette Stafford, former caretakers of the mansion, claim to have caught Nathaniel Ropes on film. The image was taken during an insurance appraisal, of all things, and reveals two hands of a man seated on a couch. It's a ghostly snap of an otherwise unseen specter. There are accounts that the mansion's garden is likewise haunted. Visitors claim to feel the icy touch of an unseen spirit or hear the whispers of a disembodied voice. Again, most point to Abigail, but perhaps it is instead the garden's longtime keeper, Andy Bai. Bai was employed at the Ropes Mansion in 1931 and oversaw the garden until 1994. His employment ended only upon his death. Having tended the garden for 63 years, it stands to reason that he may have had a strong desire to keep tabs on the landscape he cared for so well. <clears throat> oh, well, you know, that's the end of that story. I will take care of Captain's joke. Anyway, so we're going to move over to Mercy Tavern, formerly known as In a Pig's Eye. I personally like the other name. Yeah, why would you to rename it? Anyway, so this is one of Salem's oldest taverns. After the witch trial menace ended, Salem shifted from being a Puritan community to one that catered to many of the vices of the merchants of demons arriving on its shores. Salem was a port with numerous thriving wharves and was active in commerce, shipbuilding, and other trade-related ventures. The hustle and the bustle of the seaports laid the foundation for a booming economy in the city. Too many establishments emerged, especially those geared towards the interest of the growing population of sailors in the area. What is now known as the Derby Street Historic District was once a mecca for prostitution, gambling, drinking, and other horribly questionable deeds. Yeah, we can say that Salem did a 180. Now, across the way from the House of Seven Gables, a tavern known as In a Pig's Eye, now known as the Mercy Tavern, attended to all those needs of the sailors and captains of the passing ships, stopping in for to the sea porch for a night's rest, a quick drink. While seamen were known for seeking the company of women, especially prostitutes, and after many disorienting months at sea, working in the ships was dangerous, and not to mention the environment was dirty and cramped, 
Therefore, once they set their foot on land, the sailors would enjoy the no strings attached on the man into the sea that the ladies would offer. In 1762, the Derby was created by Ellis Hackett Derby Sr., was rapidly becoming the busiest wharf in Salem. When Sr. passed away in 1799, he left his massive fortune to his son, Jr. Jr. was accustomed to the life of luxury, and he wanted to maintain it after his father's passing. He was a member of the Salem Maritime Society, whose main objective was to obtain curiosities from the Orient and other parts of the world. Derby then realized that by smuggling valuable items, he would be able to continue his lifestyle and feel that inheritance a wee bit more. So he devised a plan. He would beautify the park that is now known as Salem Common Historic District, which mainly was a swamp at the time. If you uh, ever look up ulterior motives in like the encyclopedia or something, there will be a, there will be a picture of this right next to it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he decided he would fill in the marsh with dirt and create trails for people to stroll through. The beautification helped him hide the fact that he was digging tunnels around Salem since he would then use the dirt from the digs to fill in the swampy commons. Derby also needed an enormous amount of brick to build the tunnels. To hide his massive brick purchase, he ordered construction materials for several brick houses to be built around the area. The houses built had fireplaces in the basement that would serve as entrances into the underground tunnels. These tunnels connected different parts of Salem to the wharf. With the tunnels now in place, the sailors could transport goods they had acquired or stolen through their orient, uh, during their oriental voyages, and the tunnels became passageways for smuggling rare and valuable items like gold, precious artifacts, crown jewels, even objects that were believed to possess magical properties. When the uh, Mercy Tavern was busy as a brothel, its reputation was one of disgust. Not only were the, uh, of course, the affairs were happening inside, but many young men who would visit the brothel never came out again, at least not out the front door. Sea captains knew of the tunnels and used them to their advantage. They would order their deckhands to go into the brothels or through the tunnels, kidnap healthy men that they encountered inside, and then they would be forced into service aboard the ship. A new crew members were always in demand, and sailors of the time were often malnourished, diseased, and mistreated. Seen as disposable and easily replaced when sailors became so sickly that they perished or, of course, they were cast out to sea, left to drift on an endless ocean. Their captains and crewmates, um, to the next healthy and sometimes unwilling young man, the seamen took advantage of the underground tunnels and used them to transport Shanghai's men to the wharf. Now, the tavern is said to, of course, be plenty haunted by the sailor spirits once visited their establishment. Sightings of the young sailors have been reported in the restaurant bar area. The tavern staff also report hearing disembodied voices when the building itself uh, is empty of all customers. With its close proximity to the seashore, Mercy Tavern is a hot spot for paranormal activity, as the waterfront is also said to be one of the most haunted places in Salem. Visitors and residents alike have witnessed ghostly pirates emerge from the water, walk onto the shore, and vanish soon afterwards. Employees of the tavern hear voices from the tunnels and report shouting and arguing from beneath the floorboards. Strange, since most of the tunnels have been blocked off, if not filled in for safety purposes. Even stranger, in 2010, a retired professor and his associate ventured out into one of these tunnels, finding an antique bank, a grocery store, murals, elevators, and empty shafts where the people used to live. The voices of the Mercy Street Tavern staff heard likely belong to the spirits of the people that once lived in those underground areas. And that's going to bring us to our last stop for the evening. Patrick, because if you didn't need another reason to avoid brothels. <laughs> Shanghai, yeah. Suddenly, minding your own business or minding one of the, the local ladies, all of a sudden you wake up on a yeah. ship out of sea with little say in what you're going to do. And you get whipped for protesting. 
Work or swim? Ah, those were the days. Don't mind me. Oh, yeah, so one last stop for this evening. So now perhaps after all this, you may, may be itching for a visit to Salem. Maybe maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. When do we leave? Wait, okay, when do we leave? Yeah. I love Salem. When do we leave? I, I, I only got to do the one day trip there. So, I yes, I want to get back to Salem. Now, if you're going to go and you're watching the show, there's a good chance that you'd be interested in a haunted location to go ahead and take up temporary residence, if you will. You are in luck, because there is the Hawthorne Hotel, maybe your best bet for a spirited stay. It's reported that, in particular, rooms 325 and 612 play host to the majority of the world's uh, hotel's otherworldly activities. That said, some other things have happened as well. Now, named after Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The House of the Seven Gables, the house was built in 1925 in an attempt to attract tourists to Salem. It succeeded in its goal, bringing uh, many... Hmm? Seven Gables is what you're, what you're referencing Nathaniel Hawthorne for? I'm sorry, the letter, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's because the House of the Seven Gables Got right across yeah. the street from it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, he's not <laughs> much better known for sure. Yeah. yeah. But, interesting one. <laughs> but the House of the Seven Gables is in Salem, right across the street from the You're right. Okay, cool. So, yeah. <laughs> now, it's, it has brought many famous people to its doors, including Johnny Cash, Liza Minnelli, Bette Davis, former President George Bush, Owen Powell, Walter Cronkite, and the cast from the 70s sitcom Bewitched, which also featured the hotel in one of its episodes. Now, regarding Bewitched, some Salem locals were in incredibly unhappy about a witchcraft comedy show being filmed in their city, which, in their eyes at least, was still trying to recover from the dark stain of the Salem witch trials nearly 300 years prior. I I don't know about that. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird time. Like, it's like, it's wow. I, uh, guys, I know my health is in this area. I promise. At this point, um, if if they weren't embracing this uh, the the witch trial thing in the seventies, they certainly are today. Oh yeah. Yeah. So anyway, coincidentally, the Hawthorne Hotel stands close to Turner's Seafood, mentioned earlier in this episode, and is also said to occasionally play host to the spirit of Bridget Bishop, whose apple orchard was once on the property. The hotel is also reportedly visited by the spirits of sea captains and sailors. Other ghostly activity includes bathroom lights and faucets turning on by themselves, random icy cold spots, and light fixtures moving on their own. People will also hear crying children when none are around and will see mysterious mists with no logical explanation. Creepier still, guests have reported, uh, repeatedly reported feeling cold, disembodied hands touching them in the night. Now, I found this, uh, this last bit here on TripAdvisor. There was a guest who stayed in room 610, now I mentioned 612 is one of the most notorious ones, but they stayed in 610 roughly 10 years ago. And they reported the following in a TripAdvisor review, which, mind you, they gave it four out of five stars and said it was very comfortable, lovely stay. However, what the we, yeah, in this particular case, we did experience something odd immediately after turning off the lights around 11 p.m. There was a very loud sound in the room, which made us both sit straight up in bed. We thought someone had opened the door, but there was no one there. The door was closed, and no one was in the hallway. We looked around the room to see if something had fallen, but nothing had. The only way we could recreate the sound by was swinging the metal safety lock open really hard against the door frame. You know, those ones that they use instead of the chain locks now? Well, go ahead and look at it as hard as you can and ping it off the doorframe. Basically, what they heard. So, uh, goes on to say, it kind of freaked me out, but I didn't feel threatened. I guess they just wanted to get our attention. End of quote. Now, the hotel management did reply to this report by neither confirming nor denying that paranormal activity takes place in the building. They took the middle path of saying that if there are spirits present. They cannot be summoned on demand. In the 
management's own words. If you come looking for a paranormal experience, they're not on the payroll. Not on the payroll. They can't guarantee it. Don't go asking for your money back if you don't have a paranormal experience. But aside from that, or if you do. Yeah, or if you do for that matter and you did not want one. But if you're listening to the show, I suspect that um, you you, want one. you're looking for one. They just can't guarantee it. Um, and it sounds like a perfectly lovely place to say anyways because, yeah. I'm all for that. Yeah. But that is the last one for this evening. Uh, so next show will be Haunted New Hampshire. And that will be in two weeks. Yep, uh, Scarlet Letter and his ancestor. Oh, you know, Daniel Hawthorne's his ancestor was a judge at witch trials. Yes, I knew that. Yep. Uh, he likened a tattered jacket and its holes to the glow of a jack o' lantern if memory serves. You would know, but I honestly don't know. I'd have to look back. It's been a while since I've been up there. And uh, Patrick, he did go on that trip up to Salem not that long ago. Yeah. You guys. Got a picture taken in uh, by the grave of Nathaniel Hawthorne's father. And uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne himself is buried in the same cemetery as Washington Irving in Terrytown, Sleepy Hollow, New York. Another Washington. Um, I will say I have been in the House of Seven Gables a couple of times every time. I did get to go there with you that one time. Yes. It was an interesting tour. I have a picture. Oh, and Patrick went to Salem in October of last That's year. Dang. Time means nothing. It's only been 13 months. Yeah. So what's your extra story? Oh, yeah, extra story. So I, I got a friend who now lives in Charleston, but used to work at bar um, up in Salem. And it was uh, reportedly um, across the street from where the um where Giles got correct. Yep. Um and he didn't have any like actual experiences other than the fact that any time that she went into the basement she would get intensely uncomfortable. But she would not go to the basement by herself. So yeah, especially yeah. if it was one of the basements to the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was sensing somebody who was shining her out. Yeah. Now, if, we, if you think that uh, you, you know Salem and you think we might have left something off, well, you're right. This was not intended to be an all-inclusive episode. There's a very good chance that there may be, well, we'll see what we do with it. Yeah. Maybe it's at Haunted Salem Part 2 or... Mixed into Haunted Massachusetts. Haunted Massachusetts or if it fits a specific theme like a haunted hotels or something yeah. like that. It might show up in there. This will not be the last you hear of Salem on one of our shows. We're still recovering. It's and been, I've been up since 5.30. Yeah. Somehow it is the Monday after Halloween. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. it feels and like it's been like a week. Yep. Yeah. This was a, it was a long, busy week, even though Halloween is mm-hmm. in the rear view mirror. But, uh, yeah, Haunted New Hampshire, two weeks from today. And then I think we are taking another, it's a three-week break. Yes, because the Key West, um, we are not doing one the Monday after the trip because we'll still be in Key West and Internet there is not the greatest. We, we might film a very brief short and then upload that, but we won't be trying to go live because we can't guarantee that we're going to have a good enough connection to do so. Yeah. But um, then we'll be doing some Victorian Christmas stories again. As, is, as our new tradition for December is. Yep, and then uh, Haunted Christmas is part two the day after Christmas. Yep. So, but yeah, the, last year we did basically the same thing. We did a, an evening with some Victorian Christmas stories and uh, a, a couple of just haunted Christmas type stories, like real life hauntings around Christmas. So we'll have more of both of those for you in December. Yep. And, uh, yeah. Then we'll get to the new year, and I'll probably take another state, and we'll just keep working our way through some states. Yep. Yeah, because I've been promising to do that, so I'm going to keep that new year sort of resolution. Yep. Yeah. But, yeah, we, we have no lack of things to talk about. Um, so, yeah, lots of shows coming up, and, um, yeah, lots of shows, and also we'll have, um, as we 
I don't know. We'll see. Maybe in a couple of weeks we'll have some announcements about some special events coming up. Yep. Still playing with calendars. Are still playing with calendars. I know that um, we're, we're probably going to be looking at doing some uh, some public readings uh, at various locations. We will not make any promises or name names yet, so that we until we get those pinned down. But um, gotta get some meetings taken care of first. Yep. But once we get those pinned down, we'll be posting them on our event calendar. And uh, yeah, good things in the future. Yeah. And uh, tours aren't going to stop. This month we've got tours Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. We're doing that right through Thanksgiving weekend. We are taking a weekend off. It'll be the first off weekend in quite a long time yeah. when we're in Key West. And um, then when we come back, we will have events uh, Friday and Saturday. Fridays and Saturdays, except for around the holidays. I think Christmas and New Year's, we're throwing things off a little bit because of where the holidays fall. Yeah, so we'll be doing things on those Thursdays beforehand. I think Thursdays and Fridays, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yep. But, yeah, so we got stuff coming up. We're, you know, can't stop, won't stop type deal. Yep. And we will see you all in two weeks for Haunted New Hampshire. Yep. Have a good night, y'all. Thanks for watching, everybody. Bye. Come to Comic-Con. Yes, come to Comic-Con. And uh, our next show is going to be still before that? No, after oh, that. After yes. That. So just shy uh, a week from this coming Saturday. So. Almost two weeks, not quite two weeks. Oh my God. Come see us at Comic Con. <laughs> Good night, everybody.